I cannot express how excited and how honored I am to be here with you all this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those and, and, and meet me in Ruth chapter 3. And as you do, I want to tell you a little bit about my love for you all. Um, as Carol mentioned, I am one of the pastors at Reality LA. I've been on staff there for more than 10 years. Um, and I've been attending Reality LA for more than 12 years, but my story with the Reality family of churches uh, goes back beyond that to the time I was a young, punk, 19-year-old from the Central Coast who randomly got invited to a college ministry at this church in Santa Barbara with this really tall, blonde surfer guy who told me things about Jesus I'd never known before, and it changed my life. Um, and so to, to, to be here with you all and to be able to open the word of God and to be able to, to worship with you, Reality Carpinteria, not just as the, the church that planted my church, not just as the family who, who, who built my home, but as my brothers and sisters who I love dearly on behalf of your firstborn church, Reality Los Angeles, we love you and I'm so thankful to be here with you today. As I said, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. We're going to go ahead and tackle this whole passage. Uh, So if you are there, why don't you read along with me? It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word is true and beautiful and precious to us. God, your word is food for our souls. And God, I pray this morning you would help us to feast together. Lord, that you would help us to understand what your word is saying to the churches, what your spirit is saying to us. God, strengthen us and help us to be the men and the women, the children of God that you have called us to be. Help us to love you with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there comes a time in every relationship when two people must define the relationship, the fateful DTR. If you have not had the privilege of dating in the 21st century, this might be foreign to you, so allow me to explain. This is the conversation that the whole relationship hinges upon. This is the conversation when you finally find out what potential there is for a future in this relationship. This is when you find out whether or not you're just getting to know each other, you're just hanging out, or if you are going to go public with the title of boyfriend and girlfriend. I had a conversation with someone recently and I was asking about his relationship status with this new girl he was seeing and he was like, ah, oh, we don't really like titles. We're just like, it's like having coffee. So apparently having coffee is a relationship status in <laughs> our world today. What we have here in Ruth chapter three is of sorts, it's, a, it's an ancient DTR, so to speak. It's time to learn what kind of relationship Boaz and Ruth are going to have. Now, that being said, we can get into a little bit of trouble if we read this passage through the lens of 21st century dating culture in America. Uh, This world that we're reading about is very different than the one we are living in. And if we're not careful, uh, we can end up making Ruth and Boaz appear looking more like characters from a Hollywood film than people who lived in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Now, let me be clear. I I do believe that there are significant lessons that we can learn from Ruth and Boaz about biblical romance. Namely, the priority of one's character in choosing a spouse. And if we were to be together for multiple weeks in this passage, then we would certainly have opportunities to talk about that. However, I believe, and I believe the majority of scholarship agrees with this, when I say that romantic love, romantic love is not the author's main point of this chapter. So in our time, Today, we will be talking a lot about love. Ruth is a love story, make no mistake, but it's a love story of a very different kind. And it begins where so many other love stories begin, the crazy plan of a (laughs) mother-in-law. If you're new to the book of Ruth, you're probably thinking to yourself, what in the world is going on here? And, and if, you're, if you are familiar with the book of Ruth, you're still probably wondering what in the world is going on here. We don't have anything like this in our culture. We don't have anything like this in our world. How are we to understand what is going on? There is a ton of scholarly speculation in the world trying to figure out what in the world Naomi's intentions are. 
How did she intend Boaz to understand Ruth's actions? Did she anticipate that Boaz would agree to redeem Ruth, to be Ruth's redeemer? Now, as a refresher, we need to remember that a redeemer in this culture was a family member who would take on the responsibility of assisting, whether financially or in some other way, assisting a family member who was in trouble. Sometimes that meant uh, buying back a family member's land if it had to be sold. Sometimes it meant executing justice on behalf of a family member who had been harmed for some reason. And it also can include marrying a childless widow and producing children through her who would inherit uh, her late husband's estate so that his name would not be cut off from the land. This is a very different world than the one we live in. Hallelujah. (laughs) Now the question is, did Naomi expect Boaz to understand Ruth's actions to be a request for redemption in this way? Did she actually expect that? Or did she hope simply that Boaz would redeem her in some other way? Uh, Maybe in inviting her and Naomi into his home to be maidservants like the women that Ruth was in the fields with. Or maybe she had hoped that Boaz would just provide for them financially so that they didn't have to continue gleaning in the fields. We, We don't know. Did she expect something else? And that's the simple answer is just we we don't we don't know. It would be helpful if there were other examples in scripture that should could shed some clarity on what's going on here, but there aren't. This is the only thing like this in scripture. In fact, it's the only thing like this in all of ancient literature. There's really no other story that fits the bill enough to explain what's going on here. This is a very unique scene from the ancient world. So we don't know what their intentions were, but we do know how their actions were interpreted by Boaz. He saw it as a marriage proposal. But the author is doing something very intentional in the way he's telling this story. And to understand what's going on, if you weren't confused enough, it's about to get a little bit more confusing. And just a heads up, uh, the Bible is not rated G, and neither is this sermon. Fair warning. There are scholars who would have you believe that this scene describes Ruth's attempt to get Boaz drunk, to sleep with him, to get pregnant by him, so that she can coerce Boaz into marrying her. Now, where in the world Would they get that? That sounds ridiculous, but here's the thing. Given the Hebrew language in this text, it's actually not unimaginable. There are many word choices used by the author that have double meanings in the ancient Hebrew culture. And at points, the author's descriptions are intentionally vague. So what is described here can be interpreted to be pretty scandalous. Now, just because something can be interpreted a particular way doesn't mean that it must. And so let me be clear and put your minds at ease. Nothing scandalous happened that night at the threshing floor. Um, There's nothing wrong with allowing a little bit of suspense 
in a, a, a church setting, but you all don't know me that well. I don't have that kind of rapport, that kind of trust with you. So I need to earn that right now by letting you know this ain't, this ain't going to get crazy. This is, the Bible is still true. Ruth and Boaz are still pinnacles of godly holiness and, and, and purity. Just rest assured. But we're still going to get in the weeds a little bit. We're still going to dig into this and, and find out what's going on here because I think it's important. It would seem that the author wants to allow for the possibility of our minds to go there as we read this passage. This is what I'm talking about. We need to understand what the author is doing with uh, the language. There's double meaning. There's intentional, vague communication. For instance, how much did Boaz have to drink? It doesn't say. He's being intentionally vague. Another word here that's really significant is in the Hebrew language, to uncover someone, specifically to uncover their nakedness, is an expression that implies sexual contact. So if you turn to Leviticus 18 and read through Leviticus 18, it is a list of unlawful sexual relationships, and all of them are are preceded by the phrase, you shall not uncover the nakedness of blank, and it's given a particular relationship that, that you should not pursue intimacy with in that way. You shall not uncover the nakedness of so-and-so. You shall not uncover the nakedness of this person. You shall not uncover the nakedness of that person. I'm going to make it a goal to say the word nakedness as many times as possible. <laughs> so this phrase can be used for that, but then we would think, well, Ruth didn't uncover Boaz's nakedness, just his feet, right? Well, hold on. <laughs> Let's check out this word feet. Even this word is vague. So the Hebrew language and the Hebrew culture, they used a lot of euphemisms, a lot of words that didn't sound as harsh in order to be able to communicate truths without really saying things that might be offensive. And so feet can also be used as a word for legs or the whole lower half of a person, including what is between the legs. No joke. And so what did Ruth uncover? Was it his feet or was it something more? Then it says that she lays down. This just doesn't stop. To to lay down with someone is just like our expression to sleep with someone. It can mean literally sleeping or literally laying down. It can also imply a sexual relationship. You can understand why some scholars look at this the way that they do. The strangest part is that the author appears to be doing this intentionally. Listen, the Bible was not written by dummies. The Bible is the most genius work of literary art ever composed. And Ruth might quite possibly be the greatest short story ever told. This is beautiful what the author is doing. He's doing something very intentionally. So how do we know this passage doesn't describe a sexual relationship? In short, Boaz says that she's a worthy woman. Worthy woman in Hebrew is the same expression used for the woman in Proverbs 31. An excellent wife, a worthy woman who can find. Scripture would never uphold Ruth's character if what she did here was a scandal in any way. We can be clear that Ruth was not uh, soliciting Boaz in, in any 
scandalous way. So then why does the author use this kind of language? Well, first, it's just great storytelling right off the bat. I mean, are you not on the edge of your seat? Do you not want to know what is going on here? The author is an incredible storyteller. But more specifically, the, the language that the author is using is alluding to a couple of incidents from earlier biblical history. Can you think of a time in Scripture that involved the Moabites, it involved a drunken man, an unlawful sexual relationship in order to preserve a family's line. This is literally how the Moabites came into existence. This is how Ruth's family came into existence. Lot, Abraham's nephew, had two daughters, and the oldest daughter got her father drunk, slept with him, was impregnated by him, named her child Moab, and then convinced her little sister to do the same thing. In a culture when people were encouraged to memorize the Bible, this story is certainly playing in their heads. A man who's been drinking, a Moabite woman, in need of continuing on the family name. Without a doubt, that's what they're thinking. But then again, in the book of Numbers, there's another incident with Moabites and the Israelites. The king of the Moabites, after failing to curse the Israelites through the sorcerer Balaam, decides that he's going to send the female Moabites into their camp, seduce the men, and cause them to follow their gods and leave the God of Israel. Again, a student of the Torah in ancient Israel would see these stories all over the scene and be tempted to write Ruth off as just another Moabite. She's just another inbred, idolatrous Moabite. The ambiguous language that the author is using is recalling all this anti-Moabite sentiment in order to make the reader assume a pessimistic outcome, especially given the context of the world where Ruth lives. She lives in the time of the Judges. If you read the book of Judges, it is failure after failure after failure of God's people and God's leaders even failing time and time again. The reader's mind is set up already to say, here we go again. Here we go again. God's people are going to fail again. We read it with pessimistic eyes. But chapter three presents an opportunity for Ruth and Boaz to crash and burn like the rest of their generation And yet their righteousness is confirmed. They actually become a picture of the way God's people are called to live, to love one another and to love God in in, in such a way that it stands in stark contrast to the rest of culture. So this kind of love for God and love for people was uncommon in Israel during the time of the judges. And so for two people to be pursuing righteousness in this context is very uncommon. Now, It's uncommon for two Israelites to be pursuing God in this way. Now, consider that Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She's got no claim to the covenant blessing and promises of God. She's got no, she's not entitled to fellowship with God and his people. She was not under the law. And yet she lives more righteously than the rest of her generation, who are just a few generations away from the people who literally walked through the Red Sea. They saw 
God's miraculous work of redemption. And yet she did not. And yet she follows him as her redeemer, greater than the rest of her culture. So when placed over the backdrop of the book of Judges, Boaz and Ruth are examples of incredible, uncommon love. An uncommon love for God and all of those who trust him. I think this is the point that the author is making. And this is a point made throughout the scriptures. Think of Naaman. Naaman was an Assyrian general who had leprosy. The Assyrians were Israel's enemies. And so this general has leprosy. He hears there's a man of God who can heal him. He goes to the prophet Elisha. Elisha tells him to wash in the river seven times. He's cleansed and he recognizes that the God of Israel is greater than all the Assyrian gods. And so he leaves declaring the supremacy of the God of Israel, a man who is far from God when the rest of Israel is pursuing idols, receives grace. Jonah was God's own prophet, but he ran from God until he was reluctantly forced to go into Nineveh and preach judgment. And Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, where Naaman was from, they all repent and Jonah sulks in self-pity outside of the city. While God's own people run from him, he continues to pursue those who are far from him. Or think of the Roman official in the New Testament whose child is ill and he asks Jesus to heal him and he says, there's no need to come to my house for you can just say the word and it will be done. And Jesus says, in all of Israel, I have not seen such great faith. Or the Samaritan woman at the well who, like Ruth, is a spiritual outcast, an ethnic and spiritual outcast. But when the rest of God's people are blind to Jesus' identity, she believes. She puts her faith in him. This is the point the author of Ruth is making, that even when God's own people are going astray, God will still have mercy on those who are far from him. He pursues us. He loves us. My story with Jesus extends beyond that fateful night at the college ministry in Santa Barbara called Reality. Before that, I started reading the Bible in order to use scripture against the Christians in my life and in order to convince myself that faith was pointless. But as I read God's word, something amazing happens. He softened my heart to the point that when my friend asked if I wanted to come, I was actually interested. Running from him, God pursued me. Imagine what the Lord would do with you if you ran to him. He's pursuing you. He's chasing you. He loves you. He wants to pour out his love and his grace upon you. Run to him. The love with which God loves his people is nothing like we can ever experience in any other relationship. And the love with which he calls us to love others is uncommon in this world. I think the second point that the author is making is that in receiving God's love, we need to be vessels of God's love. God's love for people is manifested through the lives of his people. Our love for God has to translate into love for other people. His love not only comes to us, but is to pass through us. I had a conversation with a friend at uh, our church in L.A., And he was telling me that, 
you know, I just don't see God's presence in my life. I believe the Bible. I believe in Jesus. But when I read the Bible, I see that when people were hungry, God fed them. And when people were hurting, God healed them. But I'm surrounded by people who are hungry and hurting, and yet God does nothing. Why does God not feed them? Why does God not clothe them? Why does God not heal them? Why does God not save them? I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we have these same questions. This friend of mine is a military veteran. He says, I've seen things across the world and it seems that God helps the people in the Bible's days, but what about now? Scripture causes us to ask these same questions. Think of the judge Gideon. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. Gideon's response is, if the Lord was with us, why are we being oppressed by the Midianites? Yeah, prove it. If God was with us, why would these things be happening? Many of you can look at your own lives. You can see hurt. And you can see suffering. And you can see things that are a downright offense to God's creation. They should not be happening. It's not okay. It's painful. It's hurtful. You're wounded. You're suffering. And it's easy. It's necessary To say, God, where are you in this? Not from doubt, but from faith. Saying, God, I don't feel you in this situation. That is okay to lament. And to go to God in honesty and say, God, what about what I'm going through? Where are you? The book of Ruth asks the same questions, right? In the beginning, there's a famine in the land. Where is the Lord? This family leaves the land and goes to Moab and all the male descendants die. Where is the Lord? Ruth comes back destitute with, uh, Naomi comes back destitute with Ruth. Where is the Lord? These are legitimate questions. And I think the book of Ruth answers these questions in an incredible way. Ruth shows how God is at work in the faithful actions of his people. See, again, this author, not only the, the human author, but the Holy, the Holy Spirit's a genius. He authored this book. That's why the Bible's amazing. Just read. It's incredibly genius. And, and the, the author is working in things in this book earlier that he all kind of brings to a head in chapter 3. In, in, in Ruth 1.9, Naomi prays that Ruth would find rest in the household of her husband. But then at the beginning of chapter 3, she says that it's her responsibility to seek rest. She asks God to give her rest, and now she sees it's her responsibility to seek rest. Then again, in Ruth 2, verse 12, Boaz prays that she would be blessed by the Lord under whose wings she has taken refuge. But then in our passage, Ruth goes to Boaz and says, spread your wings over me. It's as if she's going to Boaz and saying, hey, I remembered your prayer. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. You want me to find refuge Bring refuge. Shelter me. She's seeking an answer to her own prayer. You see, many times we ask God to intervene in the lives of others, but then we ourselves do nothing. And I think God might actually want us to help people. Often when we ask God to help someone, I think his answer is, yes, I want to. So go help them. Be my hands and feet. Be the body of Christ and go help them. When our hearts are changed by the Lord, 
we should begin to see developing in us a heart for others. See, in that conversation I had with my friend a while back, I asked him, I said, have you ever experienced something in your life where you did see someone hungry and you fed them? He said, yeah. He said, did you ever see someone who was hurting and you comforted them? He said, yeah. Have you ever seen someone in need of encouragement or, or need of, of hearing the gospel truth spoken into their situation? Yeah. Have you ever been involved in something where you saw Christ glorified? He said, yeah. I said, sounds like the Holy Spirit to me. And he said, but all that stuff just feels like me. It feels like just I'm doing it. And I said, would you have ever done those things before you were a Christian? He said, no. I said, sounds like the Holy Spirit to me. You see, when God's people love people in God's name, in the name of Jesus, they experience the love of God through the body of Christ, the church. We have a responsibility to love people. Oftentimes, the reason the world doesn't see evidence of God in this world is because the love that the church has for them is far too common. So common love is a love that continues as long as it's convenient for us. That's why we don't help those in need. That's why we dip out of church as fast as we can so we don't have to get caught into the conversation with the person who just needs someone to talk to. But God has called us to an uncommon love, a love that is unique love that only he can provide. It's a love that's absolutely committed to him over and above all things. Because we are committed to him, we're committed to the things that he loves. He loves his people. But we love people with the love of God, a love that stands in contrast to our culture. You see, our culture's highest virtue is you loving yourself and being true to yourself. I wonder if our lives offer any contrast when compared with this generation. Or are we just trying to love ourselves and be true to ourselves? Or are we trying to love God, love others, and be true to the word of God? Reality Carpinteria, would you love your neighbors in a way they are convinced is not possible? In a way that they've been told you can't do? What would that look like? Ruth gives us a pretty great picture of what uncommon love looks like. We're going to spend the rest of our time just addressing these three points. Uncommon love looks like loyalty, courage, and sacrifice for the sake of others. Begins with loyalty. We see the beginnings of Ruth's loyalty to God and Naomi in her verbal declaration in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, when Naomi's trying to get Ruth and her sister to go back to their people, she says, I'm not going to leave you. Don't make me leave you. I'm going to go where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She commits her life to Naomi. When her sister turns back and goes home, Ruth doubles down. Her loyalty to God and his people especially Naomi, is declared in that moment. But loyalty is much more than a verbal confession. What happens when the heat gets turned up? What happens when Ruth and Naomi get back and they got no food? And Ruth's got to work all day to get some scraps for her and her mother-in-law. 
It's in times of difficulty when our loyalty is challenged, but Ruth was faithful. She was faithfully loyal and her love and loyalty would go beyond simply providing food, but she went to seek a redeemer. Now, how is seeking a redeemer? How is seeking a husband for Ruth loyalty to Naomi? Well, if Ruth had just sought any husband, as Boaz says, a younger man or a wealthier man, then Ruth would have been provided for. She would have had someone who could provide for her maybe longer than Boaz could, maybe to a greater degree than Boaz could. Seeking a husband does not provide anything for Naomi. Seeking Boaz provides something for Naomi because Boaz is a member of Elimelech's family, Naomi's late husband. And so by pursuing a redeemer from Naomi's late husband's family, He operates as a redeemer for Naomi as well. By marrying Ruth, she has legal claim to her husband's property and estate. Had she married anyone else, Naomi would have no legal claim to it. She is doing a great kindness to Naomi. This is when Boaz says, this kindness is greater than the first. He's not flattered that she's pursuing him. He's not, it's not like a pity date, like a pity ring, like, well, will you marry me? Because I want to be nice to you. It's not, no, it's not that. He's saying this kindness that you're doing for your mother-in-law is unheard of. It's amazing. It's the greatest kindness we've ever seen, a covenant loyalty to God's people. What you're doing for Naomi is remarkable. Pursuing Boaz demonstrates an incredible loyalty to Naomi. And so uncommon love begins with loyalty. But then loyalty manifests itself in courage. See, courage doesn't mean that you're not afraid. If you weren't afraid of something, it wouldn't require courage. Courage means that you do the right thing even though you are afraid. It means doing the right thing no matter what it costs. And see, Ruth's courage is seen in the way she risks everything to go to Boaz that night at the threshing floor. Imagine if her proposal was rejected. Boaz wakes up and he's like, who are you? She's like, I'm Ruth, your servant. He's like, get out of here. Right? Not only is, is her pride at stake, potentially, But she risked damaging the relationship with the man who is providing for her by not only letting her glean in his fields, but by telling his farmers to like, hey, leave more than you normally would. She would risk losing that provision. She risked damaging her reputation. She would be forever known as just another Moabite who thought that, you know, an Israelite honorable man would actually take interest in her and redeem her. She risked her life. What she does If it is interpreted by Boaz or anyone else to be some sort of solicitation, she could be killed. She is absolutely putting everything at risk by going to Boaz. She demonstrates remarkable courage in her willingness to sacrifice in the face of real consequences. How in the world is she able to do this? It's because Naomi's God was her God. Her people was her people. She was faithful to the Lord. She owned it. She knew that the Redeemer 
the Lord himself who redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, she believed by faith that he also would redeem her from her reproach. Church, do we have a faith like that? Does your faith produce fierce loyalty to God's people and to God himself? Or is it only a commitment or a loyalty to our own lives, seeking good for our own selves? Do we have a love that produces courageous acts of faith? Do we have a courage to sacrifice our lives for whatever God calls us to? I had a conversation with my oldest son about this. He's nine years old. So a few months ago, he was being disciplined for something. And so we're having a conversation about what it looks like to say no to yourself and say yes to Jesus, to follow Jesus. And I said, Asher, if I have a toy, it's my toy. I can do whatever I want with that toy. But if I give that toy to you and now it's your toy, what does that mean? And he said, it means I can do whatever I want with it. I said, yeah. Right now, your life belongs to you. I said, what does that mean? And he says, it means I can do whatever I want with it. I said, not under this roof. Um, no, I said, I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, it means you can make your choices and you can choose to live the way you want to live. I said, but scripture calls us to give our lives to God. Now, what would that mean? And he said, it means he can ask me to do anything. I changed it. I said, how does that make you feel? And he said, scared. I said, why? And he says, because I don't know what he's going to ask me to do. This is what faith in God requires. I'm so proud of my son in that moment. He gets it. He knows that coming to God means that he's not just our savior, but that he's our Lord. And he gets to determine and dictate to you what life looks like. This is what faith in God requires. It takes immense courage and sacrifice to live out of love for Jesus. It's a high calling. It's a difficult calling. It requires sacrifice. It means dying to ourselves and to our desires. Not only, it, dying to ourselves not only to follow God, but dying to ourselves to love and serve others. It's laying our lives on an altar. Jesus said this was the cost of following him. He said, anyone who seeks to save their life will lose it. But whoever seeks to lose their life for my sake and for the gospel shall find it. He says, the good life is only possible when you lay life down. But let's, pray. let's do this. I've heard about you. I've heard about Carpinteria. You guys get loud. LA, we're silent. We don't talk. Been longing for some Carpinteria interaction. The good life comes when we lay life down. And that's not just in the possibility of some future martyrdom should persecution come to the church in America. It's daily dying to ourselves every day for the good of others. If, if you are waiting for an opportunity to lay your life down, it will never come. But if you decide today to lay your life down and follow Jesus and love others, 
then you will see every moment is an opportunity to serve God and to serve the good of someone else. You are literally sitting in a room full of opportunities to die to yourself and live for the good of others and the glory of God. Don't be the person who says they'll sacrifice. Do it. Lay your life down. And in that you find the good life. If we're not willing to sacrifice the little things now, if we're not willing to sacrifice our time, our money, our reputations, our luxuries, our pride, our entertainment, our entitlement, our expectations, everything, if we're not willing to sacrifice everything, if we're not willing to speak up for truth, speak up for the weak and vulnerable in society, speak up to share the gospel with our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, if we're not willing to sacrifice our lifestyle in order to support the church financially and practically, if we're not willing to sit with a person who's suffering, there's people who are suffering, and you know what? It's not convenient. But you know what? It is what Christ himself wants us to do, to sit with people who are suffering. Suffering illness, suffering physically. You have friends, family in the church who are suffering and to sit with them and to be with them and to demonstrate the love of God to them. When they're asking the questions, God, where are you in my life? You can say, God, help me to manifest your love in this person's life to sit with the person suffering homelessness because of the image of God he was created in, to sit with someone who's been ravaged by drug addiction, to sit with them and to love them because of the honor and dignity that is due them in the image of God that they were created in. If we're not willing to apologize to our spouse, our friends, our community for the wrong that we have caused, if we're not willing to risk our reputations by confessing sin, the sin in our hearts, the sin that you're so afraid of bringing into the light, God knows it. And you know what? People probably assume it anyway, right or wrong. Just tell them, bring it into the light and God will remove it. If we don't have the courage to lay down our reputations, to do that and ask people to hold us accountable. If we're not willing to wake up a little bit early or stop binging stranger things so quickly so that we can spend time in the word of God and pray, look, I love stranger things, but I love Jesus and we all love Jesus. And so we can do it just a little more slowly so that we can read the Bible and so that we can pray. If we're not willing to do these things, then it's not Christ we're loyal to. It's ourselves. We're loyal to ourselves. And we're letting Jesus be a part of our lives as long as he continues to meet meet our expectations. Sadly, this is the faith that the world sees in the church. A bunch of common people who are just like everybody else. But church, we know God has called us to an uncommon love, an uncommon faith, a love for God that produces love for people. If God's grace has only come to us and not through us, we need to ask whether or not it's grace we've received or some counterfeit gospel. The truth is, though, church, we'll never be able to work up the will to live this way. As much as we might sit here and say, yes, I want to do that, we cannot work up the willpower to live this way. We'll never be able to manifest a life like Ruth or Boaz by sheer effort. Can't do it. 
We'll never be able to live a life that Jesus calls us to until we understand what Jesus has done to give us the life that we have. We've got a greater provision, a greater inheritance, a greater glory than anything we could accomplish for ourselves. You see, like Ruth, who left her home and came with Naomi and united herself to Naomi's people, Jesus left his home in heaven. He left his throne and he united himself to humanity in the incarnation. Out of his loyalty to God, he fulfilled the law. And out of his loyalty to us, he did it on our behalf so that you could stand before God righteous. It was Christ who preached the gospel of the kingdom faithfully and declared God's truths of the kingdom, who pronounced judgment on the religious elite, even though it would cost him his life. It was Christ who did these things for us. What do we need that we don't have more fully and completely in Christ? You want reputation or status? Jesus says you're children of God. You want wealth? He says, I'm the heir of all things. You are co-heirs with me. You literally own all of the things. What more could you want? Do you want comfort and security? He said, by the spirit, I rose from the dead and I put that spirit in you. What more power for comfort or security do you want than the Holy Spirit who makes dead men live? Do you want someone to love you? No man or woman can love you like Jesus loves you. Now, I know hearing this, we think of Ruth, we think of romantic love, and we say, but it's not the same. Jesus' love is not the same as the love, a romantic love of a spouse. And I think scripture would say, you're darn right, it's not the same. It's better. Because Jesus will never let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Jesus is the only one who can give you what you truly need. We cannot cast him off for something else that just feels good in the moment. Let's be loyal to him. He is the one who will never let us down. There is no love like Jesus. See, it's when we finally understand that, that we're empowered to live the way that God wants his people to live. To try to live without complete and total submission to Jesus is only loyalty to ourselves. It's trying to wrench the blessings out of God's hands without putting our lives into his. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to empower this kind of loving, courageous, sacrificial life that glorifies God, advances his kingdom, and like Boaz, brings the good news of redemption into the lives of those who are far from him. Whether you've trusted in Jesus previously or not, we got to put our faith in him today. He delights in redeeming us. He delights in redeeming us. As my son recognized in that conversation we had several months ago, we don't know what God's going to ask of us if we come to him. But we do know what he was willing to give us. He gives us himself. Church, we can throw caution to the wind. Do you know what it means that Jesus loves you? Let's pray. Jesus, we declare in this place that we believe in your love. We believe that you love us, that you died for us to redeem us. 
that you didn't just risk your life to come to us, but you laid it down so that you could receive those you love. God, I pray that this love would empower us to love you. We love because you first loved us. Lord, we love you with our minds, our hearts, our souls, and our strength. And when we love others as we love ourselves, only you can do that in us. We say, yes, Lord, do that in us. For your glory and the good of your people and for the good and salvation and redemption of all of those who will believe in the future. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.